We're going to be in the book of Philippians, in Philippians 1, verses 27 through Philippians 2, verse 4. It's on page 980 in your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. I'm going to ask God to be with us now as we turn to Scripture. Dear Lord God, you, you say that your word never returns void. And so as we turn to it now, I pray you would accomplish a work that is truly meaningful, not only in us, but perhaps also through us and the people we will be called to go to. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder if you have ever been part of a uniform ceremony, a ceremony involving some type of decorum or a uniform. Maybe um, something like soldiers, uh, maybe at an academy, being presented or assembled for the first time in their official dress. Or maybe a, a white coat ceremony for doctors or nurses. Or maybe you can picture an Olympian at the opening ceremony for the first time being presented publicly in her nation's uniform, marching behind her flag. Or maybe you're just a coach, and you know what it's like to see a young man or a young woman who is on the team, finally, to be given a jersey with the school name on it and to put it on for the first time. Maybe you can picture this type of thing. Some years ago, I was a student at a university that had been founded in 1209. It had just celebrated its 800th anniversary. And it had a lot of traditions, one of which was that there was a matriculation day, and on matriculation day, students had to be presented in their academic gown. So this was a long, jet black, flowing gown with no front. It didn't button in the front, and it had no sleeves. Your arms went through it. And it was an ancient tradition, and I remember putting on my college tie with the college crest and putting my gown on and walking down the cobblestone streets beneath these ancient spires for the matriculation day photo. What happens to people in moments like this? In moments when, when it's as though something far bigger than us descends upon us, what happens at moments like this. I think on the one hand, if you've ever experienced something like this, you, in a moment like that, you feel an imputed sense of worth. It's as though maybe a nation's entire valor is somehow shared with you when you put on that uniform. Or maybe a school's reputation, its storied history in a sport, suddenly appears on your chest. And you can't help but stand a little bit taller. I think at moments like this, one of the things people feel is an imputed or an heightened sense of worth coming from something far bigger than them that now has found them worthy to wear its crest. But that's not the only feeling you have. If you ever experienced something like this, you know that along with a sense of heightened worth, at a moment like this, you also will feel a sense of growing responsibility. What the French call noblesse oblige. A noble calling has noble obligations. You suddenly feel the weight of a new calling to live up to. When I finished the matriculation day, and I walked back to my dorm room, walking down those streets in that gown under those shadows of the great buildings, 
a surge went through me. And I, I found myself thinking, I will work as hard as I have ever worked in my life to be worthy of an institution such as this. It calls for, forth some new sense of motivation. Now, this is the mood Paul would have us in as he pivots from describing his situation in Philippians 1, verse 12 through 26, to in verse 27, turning to give specific directives about life to the Christians in Philippi. In verse 27, it's as though he has a finger raised in the air as he's chained to his Roman guard and he's dictating to Timothy and he's pacing the room and he says, only this one thing, Timothy, make sure they don't forget this, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying to them is be worthy of such a noble calling. You have been called sons and daughters of God, citizens of a new kingdom, a new colony, and you represent that colony in the Roman world. Live worthy of it. Now, the Philippians would know, and we would be reminded, that Paul does not mean by saying, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He doesn't mean that they need to become worthy of receiving the gospel. Such an idea would undermine the very notion of the gospel. You see, the basic human premise to the gospel is not our worthiness, but our unworthiness. Paul says in Romans 5.8, For God showed his love for us, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. The gospel is a message of grace. The gospel is not a set of commands that you need to keep in order to earn God's favor. The gospel isn't good life advice about how to fix your life up so you look presentable to God. The gospel's not commands. It's not advice. The gospel is news. And it's good news about something not that you need to do. It's good news about something that God has done for you, done to you. It's news that God has come into the world, that there is a God. This may be the most important thing I say today. There's only one God. God came into the world in the form of Jesus Christ. He's your maker, and he died for your sins so that you can have forgiveness and you can be reconciled to him. He offers that to you in sheer grace. You don't need to do anything for it except open yourself and say, I will trust in you, Jesus Christ. The gospel is a message of grace that is received by faith. So Paul's not contradicting that when he says very clearly, the gospel's free, but it's not cheap. Live in a manner worthy of the life and death of God's own son. You wear his crest on your shirt now. You've been baptized. You've been brought out of the water. You've been marked as his own. So live up to it. So I think I, we should ask, especially if you're here today and you're a Christian, we should let Paul's admonition hit us. What does it look like to live worthy of the gospel of grace? Paul's going to set before us two things. I'll walk us through these, but really in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, he'll basically say it, it has something to do with standing firm, a firmness. We're not leaves blown about in the wind. That's not worthy of the gospel. And then he's going to turn and say it has something to do with tenderness, a humble, 
a selfless love. So let me just walk us through these two things. So first, a life worthy of the gospel is not like a leaf blown about in the wind. It's a life that stands firm. So verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. So just pause there. It's the first thing. The first way he describes a life worthy of the gospel is by saying you're standing firm. Now, Paul is assuming by saying this a context of conflict and difficulty. And we know this because he says in verse 28, don't be frightened by anything by your opponents. So the Christians have opponents. He goes on to say that they have been granted by God not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him, engaged in the same conflict that they see Paul has and still has. So he has in his mind, he's seeing them in a context of great opposition. And he's sort of like a parent who has sent a child off to college and who is absent, who has raised the child right, but they're writing and they're saying, even in my absence, don't forget who you are. I can see all types of new challenges you're going to face. Stand firm. You know, um, the Bible um, describes Christians as light. Paul will go on in just a few verses to say to the Philippians, you are to shine as lights in a crooked and dark generation. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you, to his followers, you're the light of the world. Israel was called to be a light to the nations in the Old Testament. But we're, we're mistaken if we hear this and we picture the Christian calling as though we're a quaint candlestick meant to adorn a quiet room. We are more like a lighthouse that is built on a promontory that juts way out into the ocean, into an area where there are tremendous storms and waves. And the lighthouse is built, yes, to shine brightly, but also it must stand firmly. And so the foundations go deep, the mortar is tight, because it is built with storms in mind. So Paul, as soon as he says, shine brightly, has to say at the same time, stand firmly. So what exactly does that mean? I don't know if you have trouble standing firmly as a Christian. I do sometimes. Does Paul tell us how this works? He does. Let me walk us a little bit deeper into this passage. I'm going to draw out a few specific ways you stand firm. So first, you stand firm by having convictions. Notice in verse 27, Paul says, Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving could underline the word striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So they're standing by striving. And what exactly are they striving for? Their reputation, their freedom from Roman oppression. Notice what they're striving for. Striving for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel is kind of a catch-all that would, that would refer to the apostolic, the apostles' teaching, basic Christian doctrine. Strive side by side to stand firm in the Christian teaching. So first, standing firm requires convictions. This is about striving to have proper convictions. And notice that they're being called to stand for something, the gospel, not against something. The Christian posture is not 
a standing against. It's a standing for. People that only stand against things at the end of the day aren't very strong. Christians stand for something. Good news held out to the world. And what is it that we stand firm in with our convictions? We stand in the Word of God. Um, Some years ago, I was downtown in, in Washington on a day when a ruling came out from the Supreme Court. And it was a ruling that I immediately recognized would draw the culture into being postured in a way that was in direct opposition to a very clear Christian doctrine. And I saw at the same time all these fissures of complicated problems this would cause. I saw people would eventually fall away. I saw what Christians would be called for holding to the truth now. And I could see what this would subtly do to someone's overall belief that the Bible is clear and authoritative. And I felt like I was being hit by a wave. Because as I walked around, having learned this, the rest of the city was in jubilation. People were celebrating. And I thought to myself, I began to feel wobbly. I don't know if you ever felt like this. And what was going on in my head was, first of all, I was like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a heck of a ride for pastors. And I thought... How can I be right and all these people wrong? I mean, I know myself. I'm not that bright. How, how, how can this be? And suddenly what happened on that day and then the weeks after was I had to go through a process that was very revelatory for me. And I had to figure out where exactly do convictions come from? Because you see, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not off the hook. You have convictions These are basic truths you live by. Maybe they come from a French existentialist, maybe a political thinker, but these are things you're banking on being true when you have to weather a storm. We all need convictions. So I'm plumbing mine. Do they come? Can I root my convictions in the ruling of a court of man? Can I root my convictions, because I know the court of men can be wrong, Can I root my convictions in a cultural ethos? I mean, just look over your shoulder at different cultures. Cultures can be wrong. The mob can be wrong. Do I root my convictions in my feelings, cultural nostalgia, the opinions of my parents, my desire to fit in? What in the world does a conviction rest in at the end of the day? Have you ever wondered that? And so as a follower of Christ, I just followed my marching orders. I knew what to do. I went back to Scripture. I carefully studied it. And I went back to the biblical foundations, and it became crystal clear to me, okay, this is what Jesus teaches. This is the revelation of God. Here's what it says. I will either root my life in this, or I will root my life in the fickleness of the opinions of men and women. It's scary. It's scary. But at some point, I hope you get there. I hope you can see what's underneath the lighthouse, how deep its foundations are, because the storms will come. I do not want my lighthouse rooted in my feelings. And quite frankly, I don't want it rooted in anybody's culture. So first, to stand firm, our convictions must run all the way down into the bedrock of God's revealed truth, no matter what storm is raging. Second, however, 
Along with convictions, firmness requires camaraderie. Do you see there all the communal language? How how is Paul calling them to strive? Is he saying strive alone, like Rocky? What's he say? Striving side by side. Beautiful phrase. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Paul is drawing from language that would have been used in athletic imagery or the battlefield. It's an image of athletes striving together, soldiers creating a phalanx with their shields. And I found this too. So along with convictions, you need camaraderie to stand firm. I found this too in my own life. At times when I feel like what I believe is so at odds with every other person I know, it's my Christian friends, my dear Christian friends, some of you that I sit with and talk with, and they help me remember, you're not crazy. You've got Jesus, you've got Paul, you've got Augustine, you've got Luther, you've got Calvin, you've got Edwards, you've got Stott, Packer, Keller, Yates, and Lobefeld, and you've got me. You are not standing alone. Friends, do you have Christian comrades? You need them, and they can be dead. It's okay if they're dead. I hope you have some living ones. But you should have a shelf of biographies. You should have a shelf of biographies. How do we stand firm? Biblical convictions, Christian comrades. Third, composure. Verse 28. Paul goes on to say, stand firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. I mean, can you see, I mean, picture, I I don't know this for sure, but if you picture with me for a moment, he is chained to a guard. Maybe he's chained to Maximus. And he's dictating to Timothy, and he says, not frightened in anything with a glance at the guard by your opponents. This is a sure sign to them of their destruction and you of your salvation and that from God. What Paul's doing here, and the word he's using about being frightened is a word that was used in Greek literature for horses that were spooked in battle, which is a disaster for Calvary. He's saying, don't be spooked by opposition. The pilot comes over the intercom and says, we're, we're going to have turbulence don't be, fr- don't be frightened by it. It's coming. And Paul can say this not only because of his own experience, because Christ said to his followers, you will have tribul- tribulation in this world. And what's interesting about this passage is Paul goes on to say, it has been granted to you not only to believe in the gospel, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. So what Paul's actually saying is your suffering is by divine design. And and there's a Christian principle here that's worth remembering, and it's this, that God has so ordained things that his people on earth, one of the ways they will display the worth of his son is by paying a cost for holding on to him. When we suffer for Jesus, he looks like the pearl of great price, that we would sell everything to have. When we walk away, as soon as it gets hard, Jesus is just another cheap trinket like the tarot card reader or the psychic you can stop by. You're not going to suffer for them. You're going to dabble a little bit, have a little fun. They don't mean anything to you. 
That's not how Christ ought to be treated by his people. Opposition should not make us shrink back. So Paul, third, he says we need convictions, we need comrades, and we need to be composed, not surprised when opposition comes. Now, this is hard. I admit that. But it's what Paul is saying. Those of us who have been found in this world by the Son of God, who stood in the face of sin and death, bearing its brunt, who has been resurrected from the dead, who stands strong on the other side of death, who has secured eternity for us, who is with us, who will not leave us, how do you live worthy of that gospel except by standing firm? Um, This August, I started working on a a personal document that... um, I titled TFCA at 2050. And this was my way, and and who knows, I I don't know if I'll be the pastor here, I don't know if I'll be alive then, but it was helpful for me to, to draw a line in the sand by 2050 and ask the question, what do I hope this church looks like then? It's only 27 years from now. And I ended up listing out six things. And you know what the first thing on the list was? Like, what do I hope is true of us in 2050? The first thing I wrote was to be found faithful. Because that's not guaranteed. And under that heading, I wrote this. We did not plant our church. We inherited it. Since 1732, Christians in Northern Virginia established, supported, and loved the Falls Church Anglican. We exist in part because of their faithfulness, their prayers, their tithes, their tears, their preaching, their discipleship, their constancy. It would be heartbreaking to be the generation that lets this legacy of faithfulness die. We must stand firm. Christians, this will require the teaching ministry of the church. Not shallow, feeling-centered theology. We must go down to the ancient doctrines believed always and everywhere and understand them. We must catechize our children, teaching these things to them. We must go deep So the lighthouse can stand. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, as I said a moment ago, where will you be in 2050? What are your convictions? Will you just move around with a culture that's so lost, well-meaning, but so lost? Or do you have moorings that run any deeper? That's the first way we live worthy of the gospel. We stand firm But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the next section, Paul pivots away from the feeling of firmness towards tenderness. And in doing so, he's turning away from the community's posture outwardly, and he's turning to its life inwardly. It's as though a group of people have made it into this lighthouse, and now they're huddled together, and Paul says, here's how you treat each other. And so, along with standing firm, I want you to see we also are called to humble love. So, you'll see in this section 
that Paul, here's, here's how this section breaks out. Okay, this is chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's real simple. What Paul does in verses 1 is he lays out all these tender qualities of life in Christ. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, can you feel the dissonance? A moment ago he was saying, stand firm, strive side by side, don't be afraid of your opponents. If there's any comfort in love, if there's any sympathy, if there's any affection, can can you feel the apostle? He's not just tough, he's tender. And what Paul will do is he'll set up this reality we have in the gospel. The gospel says not just that Jesus died for our sins to balance the scales of justice. The gospel says that Jesus personally comes to us as our elder brother. And he applies very tender balm to our wounds, picking out individual sins of of ours to put on his very own body. And he walks with us in tender care. He's merciful. He's a high priest who's able to sympathize with us. And so Paul is saying, you who are receiving the mercy of God, how could you not turn and show mercy and love towards God's people? And so Paul will land this little section in verse 4, verse 3 and 4, with this command. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. A life worthy of the sacrificial love of Christ is a life that offers sacrificial love to Christ people. Now, what does this look like for us? We stand firm. Some of you, that comes very naturally to you. But we also turn in great tenderness towards one another. Let me just give you two things I think this passage would highlight as how we turn to love one another. The first is humility. Um, Paul uses the word humility in verse 3, and this is actually kind of a very important early Christian virtue. He says in in verse 3, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You can see the logic there. How do I count others more significant than than ourselves? How do we do that? In humility. This is how you do it. If you're proud, if you're prideful, you will not count others more important than yourselves because the definition of pride is you think you're better than other people. So, Humility was not a virtue in the ancient world. It was actually a negative idea. It meant something like servility or weakness. And the Greeks and Romans did not prize it. They prized the strong man, winning, and valor. Historian Tom Holland writes of that culture, to blaze like a golden flame, to attain a godlike pitch of strength and valor. This it was to be most fully human. Iron courage, unbending discipline, mastery of body and soul. These were the qualities that had won the Roman people the rule of the world. As on the battlefield of Troy, so in the new world order forged by Rome. It was only by putting others in the shade that a man most fully became a man. Into that milieu, and Philippi is a colony of Rome, where Roman citizen is, citizenship is prized, Paul is saying the church is no place for heroes. The church is no place to build vain glory. And to press his point, in the next section, he holds up Christ as the great model. He says, he who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying in himself, he took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient, humbling himself to the point 
of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying, look at me, I'm in chains. Look at Christ, he humbled himself to die for you. How could you possibly walk into church dripping in pride? That's an embarrassment to Christ, Paul is saying. Mercy, which is at the core of the gospel, mercy never thrives among the proud. So friends, as we learn to love each other, as we welcome new members, let us not think too highly of ourselves that we aren't called to love the people in this room. The second thing, though, along with humility, is what I would call commitment. And commitment, I think, comes forth in verse 4. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now think about this passage. We can pass over it far too quickly. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Who are these others? Are they, are they random people? You, you just pass every now and then? And what does it mean to look to their interests? What would it take to actually know a person well enough to be able to look into their interests? In place of looking into your own interests, you would have to get to know them. You would have to be committed enough to them to spend enough time with them to be able to see them and look into their interests. And this is why Paul has in mind these early Christian communities. And he's always fighting for their unity. And he's fighting for their oneness because he knows that the way they commit to each other and the way they love each other, you could picture them like, you know those neon signs that say a word? Picture the church as a neon sign that says gospel. And the dimmer switch that sends electricity into it so it shines is our love for one another. So the more we love each other, the more we care for one another around the gospel, around our convictions in Christ, the more we push the dimmer switch up and people see it. The more we don't, people don't even notice. They're just like everybody else. I want to be in that church. Nothing different. Nothing shines. And so how might you do this? Not only stand firm side by side, but side by side practice a humble love. One Practical application just happened in our church. Membership. Now, you may not be a member. You may not become a member. But just think about what we just did. This group of people, they can just show up on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with that. Guys, we don't lock the doors on Sunday. You don't have to be a Christian. To come. You just have to be safe to come here on Sunday morning. You don't have to believe anything. You're more than welcome. Every single Sunday. But they said we want to go deeper. And they thought about who we are. And then I want you to open up on page two of your bulletin. They made this covenant. And I'm simply going to read you the first two bold sections. Or I'll read them and comment on them. Because you see, all this is, is trying to put skin on whatever it means to look to the interest of others. And Paul means the Christian community. He doesn't mean some sort of civic, anth civic philanthropy. That's fine. That'll happen. It's not what he means right here. So we as members and they as new members, we commit 
to gather regularly around our common hope. To love people, you have to be with them. They're committing to be here, to show up, to be at worship so they can see our faces, so we can see their faces, so we can meet one another. Second, They've committed to work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in this church. Meaning one of our aims as members of this church, one of our great labors, I wonder if you do this, is to actually pray and strategize for the sake of the unity and the bond of the Spirit here. Is that something you do? Or, or, or do you kind of impute negativity around, judge people for different things? Paul says, humble yourself. Count others more important than you. Look not just to your own interests, but to the interest of them. Friends, our life together in a, in a digital world where people are increasingly unconnected, where commitments are increasingly thin, we will have to push uphill to foster this kind of one another love, this kind of humble love. But part of the humility of it is giving yourselves over to pick and stick with some group of Christians and say, I am going to learn what it means to love sacrificially by loving these people sacrificially. Why? Because that's how I'm loved every single day. And not just by a nobody, but by the son of the living God. So here's the sermon in a nutshell. What does it mean to live worthy of the fierce line of the tribe of Judah who has conquered sin and death and stands at your right side every moment, it looks like standing firm with him. And what does it look like to live worthy of the lamb who was slain, who poured forth his mercy for sinners like us? It means to love humbly. So stand firm. Love humbly. What represent well the crest, the Christian cross you wear upon your breast. Lord, we thank you not only for the dignity of clothing us in righteousness and calling us your own, but we thank you for the weight of responsibility that comes with the call to live worthy of the gospel. May it be so. Amen.